so my name is Laura Broxton and I'm from the National Animal Rights Association and I'm here with a good friend of mine today from way back, Jera uh, Selby. So thanks for joining me today. Uh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. So what I wanted to ask you first of all is what started you on your journey into veganism and activism? Um, well, I think that from um, as early as I can remember, I always cared about animals. Um, I always considered myself to be an animal lover. Um, and when I was like three or four years old, I remember thinking, ah, oh, like I want to help animals. So I want to be a veterinarian because those are the people who help animals. Um, and then I remember when I was about, I think nine years old, um, my parents parked their car behind a butcher's van and the butchers opened up the back of the van and my sister and I were in the back seats of the car and we saw these pig carcasses hanging upside down inside the back of the van and suddenly like it dawned on me like I was always like caring about animals I always cared about dogs and things and like you know if I ever went to like a petting farm um I'd always care about the pigs and things and suddenly it dawned on me oh my god this is what I'm eating um so as soon as they I saw these pigs hanging upside down I made that connection um and I don't know how I hadn't made the connection before but I hadn't um and so then after that, I stopped eating them. Um, and I started to like try and get a little bit more involved in like helping animals. So a lot of people kind of assumed it was just a phase and they were like, oh, she won't be vegetarian always. Um, but I kind of just started educating myself more and more about it. And the internet came about, um, the internet wasn't really a thing before. Um, but I think when I was maybe, um, 15 or something 14 or 15 I started to uh, google things and I started to discover things and suddenly it kind of dawned on me that being vegetarian wasn't enough um, like before I would just assumed that like you know you didn't have to hurt cows to get their milk I, I always thought that thing of like cows have to be milked it's doing them a favor oh, you can't people do <laughs> exactly so like suddenly it dawned on me oh my god like no I'm hurting them I'm just being a hypocrite so when I was 16 I think it was I became vegan um, and kind of as soon as I became vegan, I became an activist. Like there wasn't really, um, any debate in that for me. It was like, oh, this injustice is happening. We have to try and stop it. So, um, as soon as I kind of became vegan, then I started to go on protests. Um, I was living in France at the time, so there weren't that many protests to get involved in. Um, I used to hand out flyers with like two other people and every so often there'd be like, some little protest against bullfighting or against uh, wolf hunting and things and I've gone those um, and then whenever I used to go to the UK because my mother lived in the UK um, I'd started I started to get involved in protests there too um, and yeah that's I guess how I became involved in activism. <laughs> yeah I think like what I've been finding with um, a couple of the other people I've been talking to in this series is that it is kind of a natural progression you kind of go vegetarian to vegan to activism and it just you know it comes on from there and then once you start getting involved in activism you start discovering other social justice issues and it's just kind of a, a never-ending learning process but how I met you um, about maybe what 15 years ago 16 years ago something like that um, was in the height of the Shaq campaign and anyone who knows me here in Ireland knows this is something I talk about a lot. If you're a new activist and you join our group, you, you learn about Shaq pretty quickly. But for anyone who doesn't know, can you tell me a little bit about what Shaq is and what drew you to the campaign? Um, so the Shaq campaign was set up in 1999, I think it was. 
um, with one goal to close down Huntingdon Life Sciences. Um, Huntingdon Life Sciences was a contract research facility, um, which meant that any company could approach them and pay for them to do experiments on animals uh, to get their product onto the market. That's how Huntingdon Life Sciences advertised themselves, um, that they would get whatever product you needed onto the market. Um, and they were exposed for the most horrendous uh, animal abuse, punching puppies in the face. Um, and I remember um, one day when I was going through like this rabbit hole of animal cruelty video footage, which I think maybe a lot of us have done, um, I stumbled across the video footage from Huntington Life Sciences. And for me, I think the most horrendous uh, cruelty that I saw was um, something which wasn't actually like the illegal part of it. Um, they just had a beagle and they were forcing a tube down the beagle's throat. This beagle was screaming out and crying and they were forcing this tube down the beagle's throat so that they could pour chemicals into her stomach which chemicals which would cause her to vomit and spasm and eventually die and so the video footage of them punching puppies in the face that was illegal and hunting and life sciences like to make this big claim about how they'd fired those people and um, those people had been prosecuted for animal abuse and they had received suspended prison sentences um, but the video footage of them forcing the tube down the beagle's throat there was nothing illegal about that that is standard practice inside a laboratory. That's the reality of a vivisection. Um, and when I saw this video footage, I felt really powerless because there was nothing that they were doing to stop that. The government was saying there was nothing wrong with that. Um, but there was a group of people who had decided that there was something wrong with this. And they decided that if the UK government weren't going to close down Huntington Life Sciences, then they would do it instead. And that group was called SHAC, which stands for Stop Huntington Animal Cruelty. Um, it was set up by three incredible activists who, before um, starting up the campaign, had successfully closed down a uh, cat breeding farm, Hillgrove Cat Farm, which was breeding cats for the vivisection industry. And prior to that, had closed down Consort Beagle Farm, a uh, beagle breeding facility for the vivisection industry. Um, so they used the same kind of tactics that they had used for those two uh, places. Um, which was secondary and tertiary targeting, they realized that if they stood outside the laboratory, nothing was really going to change. The laboratory was never going to close. So instead they decided that they were going to target the suppliers, um, the customers and the service providers of Huntington Life Sciences. Um, the companies that Huntington Life Sciences needed to survive, but companies that didn't need Huntington Life Sciences to survive. So that could be anyone. It could be the cleaners, it could be the people providing toilet paper, it could be the massive pharmaceutical companies, whoever it was, it didn't matter if they were big or small, they were a pillar that was holding up Huntington Life Sciences. And the SHAC campaign was this most incredibly dynamic, uh, bold campaign that uh, didn't back down from a confrontation and it succeeded in convincing some of the biggest companies in the world to drop Huntington Life Sciences. Um, it took uh, some notes from the anti-apartheid campaign and before before long uh, no high street bank was willing to deal with Huntington Life Sciences the biggest insurance company in the world was refusing to deal with Huntington Life Sciences um, all of these kind of uh, giant companies that sometimes people think they're too big they're too big to take on uh, these companies were saying, not us, we don't want to deal with it. We, we don't want to deal with these campaigners. There's too much hard work. Um, and so that's how um, I heard about the campaign, was watching the video footage and hearing about this incredible campaign. 
um, I think I heard about it in 2004, so it had been about 16. Um, and the first Shack protest that I went on was when I was 16 too. Um, it was at the International Animal Rights Gathering. And um, I think the first protest that we went on, uh, the police tried to like run us off the road and things, which is a very good introduction, I think, to the Shack campaign. Um, but I was kind of like hooked, I think, as soon as I uh, found out about the Shack campaign, I think the people involved in the campaign were the most passionate, uh, caring individuals who were very smart um, and very intelligent in how they decided to take on this company. And I really believed that they were going to succeed, which is why I got involved in it, was because I thought that it needed all hands on deck and I believed that we could close it down and I believed that it just needed the people with the determination to continue it. Yeah, I, I have to say that like it was, um, you know, a campaign that as soon as I became aware of it too, I was also immediately hooked. And at that stage, before the Shack campaign started coming over to Ireland, you know, protests were, were very kind of passive and quiet and handing out flyers and just doing stalls and stuff. Whereas Shack was my first introduction to, to megaphones, uh, to run-in demos, to home demos, to everything. And it just like, it, it blew my mind at the time. Um, and it was instantly something that um, I wanted to be a part of and stay a part of. And um, it was actually Shaq Activist who um, let me use a megaphone for the first time. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, it was a, a huge part of my introduction to, to animal rights and activism. Um, and the, the campaign was absolutely the best. I mean, I still have some of the t-shirts and I remember going onto the website every day to see what new targets had folded under pressure and stuff. It was absolutely fantastic. And it's something that I would love to see happening again. Now, the, the British government took action um, to oppress Czech activists and a lot of activists were imprisoned, including yourself. So if you're comfortable, can you tell me um, what happened and what your experiences were like in prison? Sure. Um, so kind of like almost as at the beginning of the Czech campaign, there was a lot of pushback from the government. Um, they obviously didn't like the fact that uh, a small group of campaigners were succeeding in taking on this multi-billion dollar industry. Um, from kind of the get-go, um, the government started to change the laws. So tactics that Shaq used um, were suddenly made illegal. Um, they introduced, I think, uh, the Anti-Harassment Act, which was set up uh, to stop women from being stalked. And they started to use it against protesters. They introduced antisocial behavior orders uh, to limit protests. Um, the campaign itself found itself being hindered by uh, companies taking it to the high court and limiting the amount of protests you could do. Um, but the Shaq campaign always tried to remain lawful and it always tried to um, stay kind of on the forefront, kind of on the line of legal versus, always kind of like on that line, that bordered that line, always tried to push it, but like never purposefully stepped over it. Um, and in 2005, the government introduced SOCBA legislation, which was legislation designed specifically to outlaw Shaq tactics in a way. Um, it suddenly made it a criminal offence to interfere with a contractual relationship of an animal testing laboratory, which was exactly uh, Shaq's uh, modus operandi. Um, 
And so when I got involved in the Shark campaign, I always kind of thought, oh, maybe, you know, this law is going to be used against me. But it never really dissuaded me because I knew it was the right thing to do. And I knew this law was really uh, a mental kind of law because if, it, if you protested against any other um, company in the same way, um, you would never uh, face the, the, the criminal charges that suddenly you were facing because of Sokpa. So like Sokpa carried a five-year prison sentence. And if you uh, trespassed in a chicken farm um, that was breeding chickens for uh, the meat industry, you would probably get a suspended prison sentence if that, if you were, you know, caught. But suddenly, um, if that chicken farm was breeding chickens for the vivisection industry, um, suddenly now you are facing a five-year prison sentence. Um, so these kind of like dramatic um, law changes came into being, which was a result of industry lobbying. Um, the pharmaceutical industry started to put a lot of pressure on the government. They started to threaten the UK government that unless they took action against campaigners, they were going to withdraw their companies from the UK and the UK economy were going to lose millions as a result. Um, it was quite effective threats. Um, and I think the government took them pretty seriously. Um, in 2007, in May 2007, um, I was awoken to my front door being kicked down and police officers charging through my house. Um, and they informed me that they're going to be arresting me for three separate charges, two under the SOCPA Act um, and one which was conspiracy to blackmail. And I remember when they said conspiracy to blackmail, um, I thought it was kind of like um, that they were confused or that they'd gotten the wrong person or something because I thought, well, I've never blackmailed anyone. So it's fine. Like, you know, <laughs> that's definitely going to be thrown away. Maybe the Sogba thing, because it's such mental laws, I could perhaps could understand that. But I thought the conspiracy to blackmail, no, definitely not done that. Yeah, it never made sense to me when it, when it, all, when it all came out at the time. I didn't get the correlation between what you guys were doing and then a blackmail charge. It didn't It didn't make sense to me either, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, well yeah because I always kind of assumed like blackmail that's like writing threatening letters to people and I know that I've never done that so um, I was quite I was quite sure of my ground but then um, at the end of the 36 hours that they detained me for they informed me that they were going to be charging me with conspiracy to blackmail which was the longest uh, sentence it carried 14 years in prison um, and I remember thinking at the time, like, oh, this is really weird. Like, I know I have not done that. And I remember people saying at the time, um, the charges are going to get thrown out in court. But it quickly became apparent that they had put a lot of thought into the charges. Um, it transpired that the FBI had been collaborating with the UK authorities um, to effectively do what they did to shack activists in the USA here in the UK. Um, and they decided that, so a black milk charge is making unwarranted demands with menaces to cause loss to another um, and they decided that the demand not to deal with Huntington Life Sciences was unwarranted because the UK government have, had given the laboratory a license so they said there was nothing wrong with the experimentation that they did it was perfectly legal so to ask a company not to deal with a perfectly legal organization was an unwarranted demand and they said um, us threatening to put the company details on the website um, was part of like the, the menace. Um, they said that if companies knew what, com they said that companies knew what kind of uh, pressure they would be subjected to once they were put on the website. 
and that this pressure could be both legal and it could be illegal. And we were effectively held accountable for the actions of other people. Um, and so in the media, the media like um, had kind of really wrongfully reported on what we were accused of. They printed all these um, kind of threatening letters and things that had been sent um, throughout the history of the campaign, but they were not actually, we were not actually accused of having sent them. We were just accused of having operated this website and having encouraged this campaign and having led this campaign. Um, and they said it was kind of our fault that these letters had been sent, even if we hadn't personally sent them. They said that, well, we had published the publicly available company information and we'd encouraged people to contact them. And we'd always had a disclaimer on our website, which had said, you know, contact these companies politely. Um, don't break the law. I remember. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> In fact, it was really confusing for me. I was like, what am I being accused of? But um, the in court, they said that our disclaimer was kind of just like a wink, wink, nod, nod type thing. That's what I think the prosecution described it as. They said, um, you weren't really being serious. And they used people's support of the Animal Liberation Front, the fact that people had stickers uh, promoting the Animal Liberation Front, or the fact that they had uh, supported uh, people um, rescuing animals from laboratories and things. They said that because of support, the fact that we had supported um, actions that were outside uh, the law meant that you know the, the fact that we'd had a disclaimer saying please contact these companies politely it was all just kind of a bit of a farce is what they said um they essentially kept just bringing in all these things that people had done throughout the campaign and we were the only ones who were being offered up to the jury um we were the only kind of ones who were who who could be accused of anything because they couldn't actually find out who had done the illegal things they didn't know who was responsible so um, we were kind of held responsible because I guess we were there and we were quite publicly um, responsible for the website and for leading the protests. Um, so, so really they wanted to kind of make an example out of, out of you guys? Yeah, I think definitely. I think that they had a lot of pressure on them from um, pharmaceutical companies and they needed to get results. And they knew that um, if they could um, stop the chat campaign that the pharmaceutical companies were going to be very happy with the results. They knew that without the chat campaign, the, these companies wouldn't keep getting exposed. Um, and they knew that if they're not exposed, then they're not going to be subjected to illegal actions either. Um, which again, still strikes me as weird because I feel like this is the way that campaign groups have been operating for decades. Um, organizations like Greenpeace have been doing the same thing um, and I feel like it's very worrying that they could do this to us um, because I think if they can do it to us they can do it to anyone um, but sadly it doesn't really seem that many other people seem to recognize this um, I think in part because we had such bad media and publicity surrounding the campaign that people just assumed that we had done all these things that we hadn't actually been accused of um, and the trial took a long time to um, actually take place. Um, I was arrested in May 2007 and in January 2008, uh, no, in January 2009, I was sentenced to four years in prison um, after being found guilty by a jury. Um, I actually received the shortest prison sentence that day. Um, everyone else had 
apart from one other person who got the same sentence as me, everyone else had received longer. Um, one of my co-defendants was sentenced to 11 years in prison. Um, and so for me, when I was sentenced to prison, it came um, as, I, I, I don't know like how to really describe it. Um, I think like this kind of shocking sense of injustice, like I think that I, I had kind of assumed that I was quite clever and I kind of knew that there was a lot of injustice in the British justice system, but I didn't realize kind of to what extent. Um, and I, when I was kind of sent to prison for this thing, I just, and my co-defendants were sentenced to prison for this. I just remember feeling this like shocking sense of this was not right. This should not have happened. Um, for me personally, I do not believe that any of us were guilty of a conspiracy to blackmail. I do not believe that is an unwarranted demand to ask a company not to do, to ask a company not to deal with a laboratory that has been exposed time and time again for torturing animals. Um, I do not believe that that is at all an unwarranted demand. And if it's not an unwarranted demand, then it's not a crime. So Absolutely. for me, I I obviously agree with you one hundred percent. And I remember at the time the kind of the shock, um, not just in the UK, but globally about what was happening and the injustice of it all. And, you know, all I could see kind of wherever I went, whatever I did in terms of animal rights was how we can try and support you guys and write to you and do all this and get it appealed. And it just, it was, everyone it, it agreed with you guys and, and knew that what everything you did was just and this, this shouldn't have happened. Oh, that's actually really nice to hear because like, I feel like from, from the time I was arrested, I lived like the most insular kind of existence because I wasn't allowed to speak to so many other activists. That basically from May 2007, I was living in a bubble. And so I didn't actually know that like how anyone else was feeling about the campaign. I didn't really like have kind of the sense of solidarity that there was um, because I feel like they put on all these restrictions on us, banning us from being involved in the campaign, banning us from talking to other activists who'd been arrested during it and things. Um, and so for me, like, I felt really alone during that time. Um, but like, it is nice to hear that, <laughs> that yeah, other people felt it. Everyone was obsessed, everyone cared, and everyone wanted to get all of you out of there. So tr trust me, everyone was upset for a very, very long time. And it's all that was talked about, believe me. Oh, that's nice to hear. Um, well, it was, um, I think, really depressing kind of just to realize that this is what could happen. It didn't feel like that's the way the legal system should run. Um, we did try, I think a lot of us did try to appeal our convictions and our sentences, but they were um, refused. Um, when I was sentenced to prison, I was a young offender. Um, and so I was sent to a different prison than my co-defendants. Um, I was sent to Holloway Prison, uh, which was a very horrible prison. Um, it was at the time, I think, Europe's largest female prison. Um, and it has served as like a remand prison. For, so for a lot of people who hadn't yet been uh, convicted of anything, they were sent there. Um, it also, it was a category A prison, so it held people serving life prison sentence, life prison terms. Um, and I just kind of remember feeling like, wow, this is totally overwhelming for me. Um, I had always kind of um, accepted that I might end up in prison one day for uh, being an animal activist. I knew that animal activists are often uh, sentenced to long prison terms for mm -hmm. 
things that they wouldn't be sentenced to long prison terms for any, for any other uh, reason. But I kind of hadn't thought that this is what I would go to prison for. Um, I hadn't really thought that what I had done was a crime. Um, and I think kind of prison came a bit of a shock to me. Um, I think that I hadn't realized just how much suffering there is in the prison. Um, and I think that was pretty hard for me, especially like kind of being on my own. Um, and suddenly you're kind of thrown into this uh, environment where you feel really helpless to help anyone. You see all the suffering around you. So I think for female prisons in particular, um, a lot of the women inside female prisons, they are um, they're victims of a lot of things like child abuse, um, abusive partners. Uh, most female prisoners, they've not been convicted of a violent crime. Um, a lot of them have drug addictions and alcohol addictions. Um, and most of them have just been victims of the most kind of depressing upbringing. Mm -hmm. And then they found themselves thrown in a prison and their mental health is ignored. Um, they're basically warehoused inside this prison. There's like so much suffering. Um, and I think all of that kind of came to me as just, this massive shock like I, I thought I kind of understood what prison would be about um, but then the reality of it was I think a lot more depressing than I had assumed it would be um, and I think I was in Holloway prison for about four or five months um, and then I was moved to a different prison which was actually a lot nicer in terms of prisons um, I think by that point I'd sort of started to adjust to what prison would be like um, and so I think from then on then I could like make some friends in the second prison. I think the first prison I just hadn't really made that many friends, I just kind of sort of kept myself um, but the second prison was a lot nicer but I don't know, I can keep going on, but I don't know if you want to ask. Yeah, yeah, keep, keep going. I think like a lot of um, new activists especially wouldn't be aware of what you went through and what, what the other activists in Shack went through and what the reality of prisons is like. So please do share anything you're comfortable with sharing. Okay, um, so I think another thing that really surprised me was I had wrongfully assumed that um, once we'd been sentenced, sent to prison, that we would be treated like every other prisoner. Um, I thought, you know, we're all, we've all been convicted of doing a crime, surely that's it. But the reality was that they weren't just happy with us just being sentenced to prison. And this seemed to be like their chance to get their revenge is what it felt like. Um, and so they were, they were interfering kind of throughout our sentences. Um, I wanted to be moved to this, uh, to, a, to the same prison as one of my co-defendants and they refused to allow it. They said that um, it would have to go to like the extremist monitoring unit or something. Um, yeah. And then normally prisoners towards the end of their sentences, they can get day release and they can get, um, they can take part in like work release schemes, which is to help people um, get used to being back into society again. And they can get things like early release on tagging. Um, and all of these uh, schemes which are set up purposefully to help uh, prisoners get back into society and not re-offend, 
they were all denied to us. Um, like for me, for instance, I was a first time offender. I was a teenager when I was involved in the Shack campaign. I was a non-violent offender. Um, I was a perfect prisoner. I had no record, records or blemishes to my name. And yet I was refused day release. I was refused out to take part in any outside work schemes. Um, I was declared a MAPA level three, which is the highest level of monitoring that any prisoner in the UK can be subjected to. Wow. Um, and it felt like really frustrating because there was nothing I could do to change that. Um, I'd go to like my probation office in prison and they'd tell me, ah, oh, well, your, your crime is uh, linked to animal rights extremism, environmental extremism, left-wing extremism, right-wing extremism. And I remember saying right-wing extremism, really? Like, <laughs> that's the biggest, <laughs> that's <laughs> the biggest offense you could, you, you could uh, give to me. Yeah, yeah. But it just seemed like they were just trying to tick whatever box they could say to say like, you know, this person is the worst person. Um, and when, when I was- You literally wouldn't hurt a fly. <laughs> Exactly. One of my probation officers had even written that in my report. She literally wouldn't have had to fly. But like, at the same time, I was declared the highest uh, risk to the public. Um, all because I'd been involved in these, this organization trying to close down a laboratory exposed for torturing animals. Um, it felt like I was being gaslit because, you know, it's just, the weirdest kind of experience to be in when you're watching people convicted of violent offenses um, be allowed to take part in these schemes, people who've abused children being allowed to take part in these schemes, uh, people with drug and alcohol addictions being allowed to, and then you're not. It just sort of feels, wow, okay, this is how it works. Um, when I was released from prison, um, I was release into a bail hostel because they wouldn't trust me to be released into my home um wow it was it, it was all quite mental i think that that came, was what came as like quite a big shock to me was um to realize that it this was definitely political and the, the government they like to try and pretend it wasn't political they always talk about like you know this is nothing political these people have done a crime so these people are going to have to go to jail for this crime and yet everything that they did showed that it was not, it wasn't about it being a crime. It was, it was about sending out a message and how animal activists um, should be treated. And I know that um, one of my um, co-defendants, these, these uh, men in suits came to visit the prison governor and they said to the prison governor, if this governor gave um, this prisoner um, day release, they'd lose their job wow so it was, yeah it's pretty shocking um but i feel like maybe um i don't know it's just it was just a weird kind of place to be in i think that you you know, i don't know like at the time i was naive enough to assume that there would be, there was going to be like a little bit of justice but then everything kind of came as a wake-up call of no, this is about sending a message and you guys have pissed off so many people, so many powerful people, and now it's our turn to do you wrong, I think. Is what yeah, I mean, it's absolutely horrific just to, to see what was happening to all of you. And, you know, I, I hope that you all know how much everyone appreciated what you did and, you know, what you went through and that you really were in everyone's thoughts 
all the time all of them were, all of you guys were um and i'm just really sorry that you guys have to go through that but i think you know from i follow you on instagram and for for anyone interested you know your instagram stories are very informative about all sorts of social justice issues and um, it's like i i look at your stories in the morning like a news bulletin <laughs> so um everybody just check out her her instagram page but you know a lot of the stuff you post would be on abolishing the prison system in general so was that something that you kind of felt or thought about before you went to prison or was your insight in prison what kind of made you realize well wow, this just doesn't work there's no justice there's no help it needs to be uh, abolished completely um so again i think i was only 18 when i was involved in the shack campaign i hadn't really thought that much about prison abolition um it wasn't really something that i was that aware of um i knew that other animal activists and environmental activists had gone to prison um for absurd lengths of time um for act actions um and i was kind of like supported political prisoners and freeing political prisoners but at the time i was naive enough to kind of think oh but there's some like bad people and but people who've done like bad crimes that's fine for them to go to prison um i don't really thought that much about it i won't lie um but then when i was sent to prison um it quickly kind of became apparent that the people in prison um they shouldn't really be there um so when i think maybe the story that for me most stuck out was um meeting this woman who was maybe in her 50s or 60s and i met her in holloway and i remember at the time um i didn't really like this woman she seemed uh pretty um unstable um pretty scary um she was always seemed to be starting fights with people and shouting at other prisoners or shouting at officers and so I kind of just kept my distance from this lady. Um, and then one day she came into my cell and she asked if I could help read her documents for her. Um, she wanted me to read her court documents to another prisoner who was self-harming. Um, and I agreed to read these documents for her. These were her court documents and her court documents described her childhood. And so this woman should she was mixed race um, and her grandfather had made her sleep in the shed outside her outside the house because she was mixed race and he said that he didn't want any n-word um, sleeping in in his house um, she when her mother um, ever got a new boyfriend she'd be shipped off to a care home where she was like forced to stay in this care home and in this care home she was sexually abused by the people who worked there oh my god and um, she became friends with a girl in a wheelchair. And she said she used to have to try and protect this girl in the wheelchair from the men. Um, but it didn't work and she couldn't always protect her. And eventually the girl in the wheelchair, she killed herself. Um, and at one point, this young girl, um, the next time that a man came into her room in the care home, she stabbed him in the face. And from then on, uh, this woman went back and forth into the prison system. Uh, and I met her when she was in her 50s or 60s. And in the 80s, she was serving a prison term in Holloway Prison. And she ended up in a fight with the officers. 
the officers came into her cell and beat her so badly that she had to go to prison and get a blood transfusion. And in the hospital, she contracted HIV because they gave her contaminated blood. And suddenly it kind of dawned on me, like, you know, no wonder this lady is so angry at this world because that's the, that is the, she should have been protected. She should never have gone into this just the so-called justice system. We call it a justice system, but it seems anything but a justice system. This girl should have been protected. And instead she was just hurt and hurt and hurt. And I met her when she was in her fifties or sixties and she couldn't read or write. And what hope did she have? She was, she had, you know, this extensive criminal rec criminal background. No one was going to employ her. No one was going to give her a job. And so for her, it just seemed like this hopeless kind of cycle of, you're trapped, you're trapped in this system. You just go, you go into prison, you come out and then you go back into prison. And I just remember feeling so sorry for this lady. I felt um, so guilty as well because I'd also judged her. I also kind of assumed, oh, this, you know, this person's crazy, we'll stay away from them. And it's like, she's not actually crazy. She is hurting. She's had so much hurt that she should never have experienced. And I realized that she wasn't unique. There was a lot of people just like her, people who, you know, we, we put into boxes and we say, you know, these people are kind of scary, they're, they, they're unreliable, they're unstable, like, you know, they, they need help. But we, put, we throw them away into prisons and we forget about them. Um, and we don't actually help them. Prisons don't help anyone. Prisons just give people more and more trauma. I know that I myself have a lot of trauma from prison. And I know that plenty of other women um, have trauma from prison. Um, because prisons are traumatic experience. No one wants to lose their freedom. No one wants to be subjected to inhumane treatment. Um, and so for me, like that was the kind of wake up call. Um, I kind of realized it more and more throughout my prison sentence. There's so many people who are in prison. I, I never felt safe, unsafe, I think really from the other prisoners. Like at the beginning I did, um, but it was more the officers who I felt um unsafe about because you know that your life is in their hands whereas the other prisoners i felt um you know most of them were 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 fine they didn't need to have gone to prison they could have had they they could have had so much more help on the outside um to keep a female prisoner in prison for a year i think cost around forty thousand pounds a year so we put so much um resources into keeping people in prison and imagine how much we could help them if we instead were like funding educational opportunities or trauma therapies and all yeah. these kind of things that we could be doing would which would help so much more um two thirds of people who've gone to prison i think get reconvicted within two years and sent back into prison so like prisons are not helping anyone um and there's uh some kind of like crazy statistics about the amount of employers who will not um, employ anyone who's been into prison. So I feel like we have all these kind of stereotypes and prejudices mm -hmm. that we put onto prisoners and it's not helping anyone. It's not solving anything. It doesn't solve crime. It's just a way to forget about it and to try and pretend you're doing something. But for me, I feel like we need to be investing in uh, investing resources into stopping people from going to prison in the first place and into protecting people so that they're not um, kind of give... Like for me, I find it really weird how um, judges can judge can judge people for yeah. situations that they've never been in. These are like the most privileged white males most yeah. of the time. 
um, is rare that they will ever ever had any of the experiences of the people who are there judging. Um, and I feel like for most of the people who are in prison, I feel like if anyone else had had their upbringing or their experiences in life, they'd have probably done exactly the same thing. Um, Absolutely. We're just lucky enough or we're fortunate enough not to have had those experiences. Um, and so I kind of became more involved, aware of prison abolition, believing in prison abolition after my own experiences of it and just kind of, oh, this is this massive kind of injustice that's happening. And I think that what was also kind of depressing to realize is how I think um, prisoners are kind of the one of the few people who is like it's socially acceptable to discriminate against. Um, like obviously there's so much discrimination against mm -hmm. so many different minorities, but a lot, even like animal activists, you will sometimes hear um, saying like, oh, but like, you know, some prisoners, they're like deserve to be in prison and stuff. And you yeah, think, yeah. Um, you know, you, you, you need to like wake up that people don't, really choose to go and do a crime people don't actually want to go to prison it's because they have no other opportunities they've not been given the help that they've needed and they've kind of like fallen down this trap and i feel like um it's kind of this big uh injustice that we don't necessarily realize because we kind of aren't really aware of it like to see video footage or to kind of like experience what it's like in a prison that very few people have had it and so mm -hmm. like it's hard for people to really think about it and to talk about it. Absolutely God that was um, a, a really sad but um, insightful view into what prison system is like so thank you so much for sharing that and I hope it also helps people especially like I, I agree with what you said that in a, the animal rights community like a lot of activists don't think enough about other issues and I think the prison system is like way down on a lot of people's list to think about. So I hope this has given the people the opportunity to, to think about it. And I agree with you 100% that it does need to be abolished and that the, the funding put into the prison system could be put into educational programs and community programs and stuff like that. Um, and that would create a better standard of living for so many people. So absolutely. So thank you so much for sharing that. And I know it's been hard for you to kind of readjust back into animal rights um the, the movement because it's changed so so much since the the shack campaign so i was wondering like it's my wish always that we return to shack level of activism and that kind of passion and determination do you think that it's possible to get back to that level or do you think everything has changed too much now and everyone's too afraid of the the possible repercussions of it now um, I don't know. I always feel like it's kind of hard to talk so much about it because I feel like I was outside of the movement for so long that maybe um, I don't necessarily know exactly how people are feeling. I think that something that does give me a lot of hope at the moment is seeing um, that there's like a lot of activists who are beginning to openly disobey unjust laws. Um, and I think that's kind of like a really interesting direction that the movement is taking um i believe that we we should confront these laws um i think that um sometimes sometimes i feel like um with the shack campaign with trying to do things lawfully i feel like that's what the shack campaign tried to do we tried to do things lawfully um 
and they just made it all unlawful they made it all illegal and they sent us all to prison for massive prison sentences um and so kind of for me personally i feel like if we are openly disobeying these laws then maybe that is like a different direction that we could go into without trying to be inciting anyone obviously because that would disclaimer disclaimer and all that yeah disclaimer no nod nod wink wink <laughs> um but i think that's like a very interesting direction obviously it's like civil disobedience it's been done in the past um and i feel that you know we have the morals on our side the what we do to animals is wrong um for us to respect these laws that allow us to torture and abuse animals, I feel that's just going along with the abuse. We're being complicit in it. And so for us to openly disobey those laws, I think is the morally just thing to do. Um, and so I think that maybe if like campaigning goes more into that way, I think that'd be a really interesting thing that I'd like personally to see. Um, Me too. <laughs> But for sure, um, I think the movement has changed a lot. I mean, it was very hard for me um, once I was allowed to get back involved into campaigning um, to find my place again in the movement. Um, because for a very long time, I think it was like six years in total, I wasn't allowed to be involved in activism. Suddenly I was allowed to be involved in activism, but I just had no idea kind of where I belonged anymore. Everything had changed so much. Um, I know that kind of we have quite a lot of like this Instagram kind of celebrity culture thing and um, a lot of kind of like vegan uh, capitalism type thing and that all feels very weird to me. Um, it, it, it feels weird to me too. <laughs> um, and I think it's very depressing kind of when you when sometimes when you see activists and they're saying you know I'm just going to focus on animal on animal rights because they're the ones who suffering the most or something i feel like you know the animal rights movement i think kind of throughout history has always been a social justice issue it's always been about stopping an injustice and we can't just focus on one injustice we have to focus on all the injustices because injustice anyway is affected justice everywhere absolutely um and so kind of like i guess um I, of course, also hope that we can have some kind of campaign that has the passion of Shaq. I think um, a lot of people feel the same way that we kind of miss that. Um, but I don't know if maybe a lot of Shaq's tactics um, would work in like our modern day world. Um, in some ways, I feel like we have maybe even more power in our hands. Like nowadays we have the power of social media, which can be dangerous because obviously some people um, look to social media as just being the only form of activism. And it's very much mm -hmm. um, a, maybe about virtue signaling or something. But I think that it is very powerful because we can get our message across and we can Say, say things in our own words and that was something that we could never really do with a Shaq campaign obviously we had a newsletter we had a website but whenever the press kind of printed things it was very much they would give their version of events and now I feel like we have a lot more power in our hands as activists that we can speak up for the animals um, and we can you know say things in our, our own words um, and so I feel like that is something that's powerful that we have the opportunity to use more um but 
Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I'd agree. Um, but I, I definitely um, like your ideas. And I think that, you know, it would be possible to put something together again. And I, for one, would definitely want to, to sign up and be part of it. <laughs> but be, before, before I let you go, is there anything else that you'd like to say or any, any message you'd like to give out? Um, I guess one thing is I'm always very scared about speaking up about my prison experiences and my experiences with police repression um and i think for a very long time i remained silent because i didn't really know how to express my truth without scaring people um because i know there's a scary story like if i think about you know as a teenager um i don't really feel that any of the things that happened to us should have happened to us so i feel it's a scary story to tell um, and I never really wanted to tell this story because I thought, ah, oh, if I speak up about it, I'm going to scare people. I'm going to intimidate them out of being activists. Um, and so whenever I kind of want to speak up about what we went through, I always do try to kind of give another, another disclaimer that, um, I do not believe for like a second that we should be scared out of acting. I feel that whatever they can do to us, while it is brutal, and I'm not going to try to glamorize prison or glamorize being prosecuted. And I would urge everyone to try to avoid um, kind of being subjected to those things because it's not a nice experience. I know I don't want anyone to think otherwise. At the same time, I feel that it's very important that we are never intimidated into inaction. Um, I believe that whatever they have done to us as activists will never compare to what they put those animals through. Um, the I think the biggest injustice on the day that we were all sentenced to prison um, was that those animals had been sentenced to die inside Huntington Life Sciences. We were sentenced to prison, but we came out of prison. We we're all still alive, whereas those animals were sentenced to die, and they're still in those laboratories, and they're dying in their millions, and they're dying in uh, factory farms, and in slaughterhouses, and in circuses, and all around the world they're dying. And yes, we might face prison and we might face injustices, we might face repression, we might face trauma, but it will never ever compare to what they go through. And I feel that we need to find the courage and we need to find the strength to take those risks. And yes, it's not a nice thing to face and we should not ha be having to face these risks. But unless people are, then I think that nothing is ever going to change. So I hope that people find the strength um, to take the actions necessary to confront these injustices wow that was really powerful thank you so much and thank you for sharing your story i think you know it, it's really uh, a powerful story and i know it can be hard to to talk about it but i definitely think that people need to hear it and thank you for all you've done and for what you've gone through and you're one of the most dedicated bravest activists i know and i would really encourage everybody watching check out her Instagram page. She's loads of great information that she posts every day. I learn something new from her every week. So go check it out. So thank you so much, Shara. And I, I hope we can chat again soon. Thank you so much, Laura. Um, you're also an incredible inspiration to me. And I'm glad that you're still here fighting for the animals. Um, I remember you as a little kid. And <laughs> you, you'll still always be a little kid to me, but you're doing incredible work as well. So. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> Take care. Thank you. Bye.